1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. So Anne Pizzarusso and I just Skyped between Naples, where she's based right now, and Vancouver, where I'm based right now, to talk about her beautiful new book, Tweeting Da Vinci. This came out with the Da Vinci Press in 2014. Now this is a book that's Um, not just an object that you want to have around, um, open up, explore, look at, um, kind of dip in and out of, as well as being a book that you can read from front to end and learn a ton about da Vinci, about early Italy, about geology, and about the ways that art history, geology, renaissance studies can mutually transform and inform one another, it's also a lot of fun, and it's a really kind of model of the kind of work that can come from following your passion, as Anne puts it, playing to your strengths and bringing a perspective from training in one discipline in one field to doing work in another. So what she does here. Is is, among many other things, she brings her expertise as a very, very highly trained geologist to bear on reading and understanding Virgil, Dante, the Etruscans, Italian history in the early stages, um, Renaissance studies, da Vinci, grottos and caves, and much, much more, in a way that is um, just kind of astounding insofar as she demonstrates the ways that geology and having a kind of scientifically informed perspective and a geologically informed perspective can really transform the ways we look, we observe, and we understand. And she takes our hand and takes us into examples and cases in which she's done this from um, understanding how to look at and see da Vinci's paintings in a new way to taking us underwater as we explore a Roman pleasure city and much more. So it's a really fun book. It's a really fascinating book. And it's, I think, really um, especially fascinating for anybody interested in the possibilities of transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary work. So it was a lot of fun to talk with Anne about it, and I hope you um, enjoy the conversation to come, and I hope you have a chance to pick up and get your hands on and explore the book as well. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Anne Pizzarusso about her new book, Tweeting Da Vinci. Welcome to New Books in Science, Tech, and Society, Anne. Thanks very much for making the time to talk with me and for creating such a beautiful and really interesting book. Welcome. Thank you, Carla. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. Great. So, Anne, could you start us off as is traditional for the channel by just saying kind of a little bit about your background? You have a, an unusual background for um, someone who works in the history of science, You, or and especially the history of the Renaissance and science. You started in geology. Is that right? That's correct.
0: Actually, I, I'm very proud. I am a geologist. I've spent my whole life in the geologic field. I've done everything from drilling for oil, drilling for oil shale, hunting for gems, um, doing earthquake um, studies. And then the last part of my career had to do with cleaning up toxic waste in underground aquifers. Wow. And um so since I was constantly traveling and doing pretty heavy work, I decided to um, go for enrichment. And I took a master's degree in Italian Renaissance Studies. <laughs> and um, so that's how I, I developed this um, other side of me. And, and then I put the two together, um,
1: Renaissance Studies and Geology. So why Renaissance Studies in particular? How did you come to want to focus on that field? Well, the
0: um, answer is, I just really wanted to learn Italian. I'm an Italian American, but never studied Italian. And at an advanced age, I decided to, you know, learn another language. They say that wards off, you know, dementia, uh, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and my teachers were wonderful. So they introduced me to Dante and Cavalcante and all the masters of the Renaissance, Leonardo, Michelangelo. And and I felt very embarrassed because really, as a scientist, I, I took very few, if, liberal arts uh, courses. And I just became enamored um, with with this whole field. And little by little, I just decided to uh,
1: study that field. And I'm really glad I did. So although the book covers a whole bunch of topics within the broader field of not just Renaissance studies, but also early Italian history, there's a significant focus on da Vinci. And of course, um, da Vinci is in the title as well. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to want to write about da Vinci? What drew you to him in particular as a kind of fulcrum for the work that we're talking about? Well, my um, objective in getting my masters
0: was to survive i was I was in a lot of classes with PhD students and I, I figured I had to have an angle to to do well I mean I, I Wanted to get the degree, but I also wanted to understand everything. And what happened was when I started studying Leonardo da Vinci, he was a real polymath. He wasn't just an artist, he was an engineer, he was an aeronautical engineer, he was a meteorologist, but best of all, he was a geologist. So I started to study his geologic works, and one of the the first uh, research projects I did was leonardo 's depiction of geological features in his artwork in his paintings and in his drawings and and I was absolutely astounded by this, and this actually was the seminal work in in this field because everyone just thought they were beautiful drawings and paintings. Nobody had actually looked at the geology before.
1: That's right. And this is actually a really fascinating part of the book. So once we get to kind of um, chapter four and chapter five, we're actually going to get into this issue of Leonardo's geology and his paintings in detail. And there's some really interesting kind of mysteries there that you are taking us into and helping solve. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that. So the title, um, Anne, of the book, it doesn't just have da Vinci in it, but also involves tweeting. So it's Tweeting Da Vinci. Can you talk about your invocation of Twitter in the title? Why, um, Why bring tweeting into the conversation? And for you, what significance does that have to the work that the larger project is doing for you? Well,
0: it really resonated with me because he actually did tweet during his lifetime. He, he would go off into the mountains, into the Alps, North of Milan, and he would write these little notes. Um, uh, And what happened is, for instance, let's just take an example. He wrote in all cases, the motion of water conforms to that of air. That's a tweet, right? And then he um, actually sketched this um, wave pattern. And, what we have found out in the 1970s that this is, um, it's called a vortex flow pattern today, and it's a hurricane. So he, he actually depicted and, and wrote about hurricanes. Mm. And he did this in many other fields. So I felt that. Not only did he do it, he just didn't have a computer, but many of these things either got lost or were plagiarized or were stolen. And had he had um, a method of getting the word out there, not only would he have received credit for many of his discoveries, but I think that many of the things that he talked about would have been actually actualism, shula Zized, um, hundreds of years before their time. We're only being able to find out about them now because the technology has kind of caught up with him.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. So the book is profoundly interdisciplinary, right? I mean, we have geology, there's art history, there's sort of a lot like architectural studies. There's lots and lots of really wonderful confluences in the book um, among the arts and the sciences in a way that really informs both. And it's really actually quite exciting, I think, as an interdisciplinary work of scholarship. But it, uh, in addition to being very exciting um, interdisciplinarily, it's also quite beautiful. There's lots and lots and lots of really beautiful color photos of um, geological formations, of da Vinci's works, of other works. Uh, It's just a really gorgeous um, color book. So can you talk a little bit about the the project of making this book object, right? So what was the process of actually creating this object for you? And was there anything notable about the process that you'd want to share? Well, thank you so much for that introduction because I – you know,
0: obviously, I'm very passionate about about the project, and my goal here was to take things that people might consider either dry or or heavy and make them accessible. I really wanted the book to almost be like, um, uh, you know, a scrapbook uh, where we would have little postcards and pictures and things that you could just open the book to any page and have a memory. And and I, th- I think I I have done a good job in that because you can pick up the book on any page and read a little snippet or read a caption. Uh, the captions have things in them that are not in the text. So you can just look at a picture and read a caption and be done. But what I had to do, many of the things were not in existence. So I had to commission people to do maps and drawings because um, many of the things had not ever been done before and I found this wonderful artist uh, who did the cover he's a young artist in Naples Italy Francesco Filippini uh, and he did many of the illustrations and he aged the paper and did calligraphy so many of the illustrations looked like they came out of Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks so I was very I was very happy with that as an object of beauty and I wanted it to really be accessible to the widest possible audience
1: were there any challenges for you in putting together a a book object like this? I mean, there's so many moving parts I can imagine, right? And there's so many amazing images and the captions. Was there anything about the process that, looking back on it, um, was particularly challenging in a noteworthy way? Everything, Carla. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The reason being um,
0: is that... uh, I took many of the pictures myself or had um, my wonderful photographer friend, Bonnie Alberts, took many of them. So we would have to organize field trips and go out to places. And sometimes, obviously, the um, uh, climactic conditions weren't right or the pictures did not come out well or, or places were closed. In the case of one of the museums in Puglia, where I desperately needed to Um, photograph some archaeological objects the museum was closed uh, i had to tell people you know like i was never coming back to the city ever again and so they came and opened the museum and they got special dispensation and they were just so wonderful in allowing us entry and then other places you know I've, i i climbed into mountainous areas and gotten bitten by you know bugs <laughs> and all well, to get that photo and um then, of course, there was the commissioning of the, um, the various designs, and sometimes I didn't like the look or the feel, and um, it would have to be redone. So it, it was a, a pretty much a monumental effort.
1: Well, it's an effort that paid off in really interesting ways. And so let's um, get into the text of the book itself. So there's an introduction to the book that is called Italy, a Land Born of the Sea. And in this introduction, you understand or you help us understand the importance of Italy's geological history for, you know, sort of getting the significance of understanding the significance of its cultural, political, social, religious, and literary history. And the introduction also maps out the earliest history of the coming into being of geological Italy. Now, from that, we move to um, the first chapter, which focuses on the Etruscans. Now, these are one of the, as you call them, the principal peoples of the classical world. And one of the really interesting things about what's happening with the Etruscans, as you show us, is that volcanoes and volcanic activity become really, really important to their history in all kinds of ways. So can you start by taking us in, or can you start taking us into the book by talking a little bit about the Etruscans for you? Why are they such an important part of the story and what's going on with the volcanoes here? What, what, what do we need to understand about volcanoes to understand the Etruscans?
0: Well, I really didn't know that much about them uh, as a civilization. And and I think that um, most people are not familiar with them. There's very little, there's Greek studies, classical studies, Roman studies, but not too much is done with Etruscan studies. And they were one of the great cultures of the ancient world. They started up about 1200 BC and along with the Phoenicians and the and the Greeks the Romans came long after the Etruscans they were a great civilization so I felt that I didn't understand why they they didn't get more publicity <laughs> and um, part of it is is that um, we have very little that remains about the, uh, their written language and their text most of most of the objects are funerary objects and they just have people's names on them but by using uh, the geologic as- aspect to their culture, they were living, in my opinion, in the garden of paradise because the land gave them everything. The volcanic, land was very fertile and so what they could do is they had wonderful agricultural products their wines their olive oils not only could they live well but they could use this for trading material they also had incredible minerals in the Tuscan area and in the uh, on the island of Elba and they worked with the Phoenicians who knew metallurgy. And so they were great metallurgists. So they were able to um, uh, trade their minerals for things that they would like to have, like gems and silks coming from the east. They also could carve out the volcanic tuff rock. Now, tuff is a volcanic rock that's Soft but durable, so it's very easy to excavate, and yet it retains a wonderful architectural form. And they could build their homes and their temples from from this rock. They also had thermal baths; these hot waters coming out from the uh, the excuse me coming out from the earth, and these waters were full of minerals, and they could. Um, keep well by bathing in these thermal waters, so they pretty much had everything there their um, The volcanic soil affected their culture, their civilization, and their 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 wealth
1: mm-hmm. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Now, another really interesting aspect of their society, their culture that you point us to that seems really deeply shaped by volcanism and by other elements of the natural and geological world is their religion, right? Their religious life, their cultures of worship. Um, Yes. So so can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's also a really fabulous part of this story.
0: It's amazing. This is um, where I wish I had... Uh, more aptitude in classical studies, but several people have been trying to help me with both Latin and Greek texts because the uh, the Roman historians wrote about the Etruscans um, being pretty much fanatical about catalog- cataloging um, lightning. And what they would do is they would... Um, talk about the red lightning and the, the yellow lightning and the different forms of lightning and it was all part of their religion because they believed that if lightning came from the east but ended up in the west that would be an evil omen and their priest had to interpret lightning and thunder and so I thought is there any um, basis um, for this in terms of classical studies and what we find out is that um, many many historians have have written about this and then I combine this with um, some new studies by this marvelous physicist Friedemann Freund and he talks about the fact that if you have an earthquake which of course existed in that area, the rocks breaking apart can actually form sparks and strange lights being emitted from the ground. And the the ancient historians talked about this. So I feel that living in that land, they actually saw strange lights coming from from the land, but they they attributed that to the um, gods that lived under the earth. So, you can can make all these points now that science has caught up with the ancient texts and with the cataloging that the etruscans did and i just think it's absolutely fascinating
1: great thing i agree and i think it's really really fascinating here too the way you're bringing together geological um, information and classical scholarship to really inform both. Uh, So this is really, I think, in microcosm, a kind of model, one of actually several in the book, models of the potential of this kind of interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary scholarship. So for listeners, um, so we'll move on now to one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books, the the Aeneid of Virgil. But I want to just mark for listeners that in this chapter on Etruscans, they'll also find Um, discussions of the cavernous roads of the Etruscans, of their tombs, of other kinds of of, um, divination and interpretation of entrails and bird omens, etc. So there's some really fascinating other stuff in there too. But we need to move to the Aeneid. Um, Again, one of my favorite, favorite books. And chapter two explores the geology of Virgil's Aeneid. Now, as you show us in this chapter, his descriptions are actually based on, or potentially based on, real places, geologic occurrences, and volcanic formation. So again, volcanoes are really important. One of the um, really interesting moments or kind of aspects of the book that you show um, can be really productively informed by attention to geology is his discussion of the Grotto of the Sibyl. Right and this sort of right. this figure of the civil of the sibyl is actually really interesting. Um, more broadly speaking, so can you talk about that? Um, how do we? Um, how might geology, as you are de- describing it here in the book, inform how we understand the figure of the sibyl and the grottos? Well, he
0: um, Virgil was born in Mantua and he left and came to Naples to live, and. He loved Naples and the Neapolitans, of course, loved him. And even the Emperor Augustus uh wanted him to go to Rome. And he said, No, I prefer to stay here. And and he has become a, a mythical figure in in Naples, especially in the Middle Ages. He was he was almost like a saint. It's very it's very odd how he morphed into somebody um that you would actually pray to and, and, and invoke. But he lived in Pozzuoli, um, which was the ancient port where um, St. Paul arrived in Italy via Pozzuoli. And that area is very active geologically. He used that as, as the model for the underworld. And, of course, he, he invoked the Sybil of Cuma. Cuma is the, um, the oldest Greek settlement on the Italian mainland. The Greeks came there from the island of Ischia, which they called Pithacusa, around 750 BC, and started a settlement there. And Virgil set uh, the sixth book of the Aeneid right there in Cuma now the sibyls were virgin priestesses who um were dedicated to apollo and they existed in um turkey in north africa and of course in greece at delphi and they gave their prognostications to military advisors and um politicians and this um sibyl figure was the one who would lead um uh Aeneas into the underworld and she guided him and when we look in the sixth book we see she tells him to hurry because the ground is shaking. Well the ground is shaking because uh, we now know geologically speaking that earthquakes occurred in that area. She takes him into a grotto near Lake Averno which is a volcanic lake and at that time um, it, there, there were poisonous vapors coming out of the lake, and birds did not fly over the lake. the The word "avernus" in Greek means "without birds" because the birds are very smart. They don't go to places where they're going to die, and so she was his his guide. She also um, lived in a cave that was carved out of this volcanic tough rock, um, which I talk um, about throughout the book. This 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 rock material is very important because it provides um, grottos. It provides building materials um, for the whole. Area. So her presence in this volcanic atmosphere is very prevalent in bringing Aeneas
1: to Kuma and guiding him safely through the underworld. Great. Thank you so much. Now you talk about um, you know the importance of gases in these caverns, and the chapter also takes us into um, the larger importance of Lake Averno. So you, you mentioned that Christ actually stopped there, so it's actually a really interesting historical um, site. And you also talk about poets that were inspired by volcanism in different ways. So Goethe, both Shelley's, Emily Dickinson, Dickens, um, Dumas, Twain, et cetera. So there's some really interesting discussions there too. The end of the chapter takes us into, I mean, I, something I can't not ask you about, right? And this is the, <laughs> um, this underwater city, right? This, the rise. Oh, walls. yes. <laughs> so can you talk about this, um, this Roman resort as an underwater city for us?
0: Absolutely. Um, Well, uh, if you think that Las Vegas, Saint-Tropez are like Sin Cities, they've got nothing on Vaya. Vaya, in the Roman era, Augustus, Tiberius, Nero, this is where the rich and powerful came to play. And believe me, they had power, they had money, they had perversion. And all the ancient historians write about You know, just what a sinful place this was. But I found it really, really cool because uh, the earth kind of conspired with all of these people. And so what happened is, being a volcanic area, it has all of um, these volcanic vapors and hot thermal waters underneath. And the Roman engineers engineered Uh, these canals to bring the hot water to the Roman spa. So the, the Roman emperors had these wonderful hot waters and they could just relax. Well, today you can see the remnants of that spa, but you cannot see the Roman villas that were Down below along the coastline. But in the 1950s, um, a pilot saw something underwater and he went diving there. And what he found was the remnants of all of these Roman villas. So you can see the columns, you can see the mosaic floors, and you can actually go there and scuba dive or snorkel. It's only about um, 15 feet below the surface. And I've actually done it. It's it's an amazing experience. So why are they down there? It's because um, the geology of the area acts like a stage. You know how a stage could go up and down and nothing topples on it? Well, there's an underground magma chamber or hydrothermic activity under, that acts like a balloon that expands and contracts. And what happened is it just kind of lowered all the Roman villas below sea level. And I kind of feel like, okay, it lowered. So maybe one day it'll just raise the villas up <laughs> above the water. And this is called Braticism. It's from the Greek uh, bradis, meaning um, uh, movement up and down movement. And and it's the most marvelous geologic feature. And I just felt that the earth was having a great old time with these, these Romans by moving the earth up and down and just kind of partying with these people.
1: <laughs> I love that. Thank you. I, that's just super fascinating. So as we move from Virgil's underworld and this Roman resort (laughs) of Baia into the next chapter, we move into the kind of gemology, um, the, the jeweledness of paradise, according to Dante. So this is a chapter, chapter three, that focuses on the importance of gems and gemology. In Dante's works. Now, as you mentioned for us in the chapter, Italy in Dante's time was actually a center for setting precious stones. There's lots and lots of goldsmiths there. And as a result, at least in part of what's going on there, there's lots of gems, Um, there's lots of jewels all over Dante's work. And there's a lot of gem based metaphors that he uses. So you talk to us um, here about pearls, topazes, sapphires, diamonds, rubies. Emerald Amber it's fabulous um it's a really wonderful um kind of uh, approach to Dante's um, work as a kind of jewelry box in, in just a wonderful way. So, I'm just going to ask you a question that's super open um, about this chapter, and that is what for you um, kind of brought you to this topic focusing on gemology and Dante, and what for you are the most interesting things happening um, when we approach Dante's work from the perspective of gemology in particular?
0: Well, once again, um, it was a matter of survival. (laughs) I was in this Dante class, which I wanted to take and learn very much. However, I really didn't understand what people were talking about in the class, and and I I really wanted to do well. So I was looking for the logic angle to Dante, which heretofore had not existed, (laughs) and I guess I need to regress a little bit in sort of telling people that if you play to your strengths or you go in the back door, you know, if you're a physicist um, and you want to study art or you're a, a musician, obviously you can study mathematics, that if you take, you can do a lot of things that are interdisciplinary, but Play to your strength. And that's that's what I did. So I I said, I'm gonna find the geology in Dante. And once I found the geology, I I ran with it. And it really allowed me to appreciate what he was doing. And one of the things I found so fascinating was that Dante not only Understood the physics of light. He, he being a great poet, he um, used the physics of light as metaphors, talking about different refraction and reflection off the various gems that only a physicist could really understand and appreciate it. But yet, see, even Dante did it. He took poetry and then took the physics of light and combined them. And the other thing, he was a great poet. Gemologist and he i don 't i'm not sure how he had access or time to understand the different attributes of all these gems because i i've studied gems it's very complicated, and he understood not only the physics of light but all of the um, uh, numerological meanings and um, physiological meanings. In the Middle Ages, gems were considered by alchemists to have all sorts of magical properties and um, uh, medical properties. And he pretty much knew about all of these things, which I found amazing. The other thing which I really found amazing is at that time, a lot of the Greek texts were coming into Italy and, um, These were texts on um, geometry, uh, Pythagoras, Euclidean geometry. And what happened was that the Italian gem cutters became familiar with these texts on geometry, and they applied them to gem cutting so they could start faceting stones. And I thought this was a wonderful use of Greek uh, geometry texts.
1: Mhm. Thank you. I'm um, so that's really fascinating. Um also for listeners who are particularly interested in these kind of metaphorical uses of gems. Um you talk about the the pearl right being an emblem for the Divine Comedy. Yeah, the, the pearl um because
0: the the pearl has this inner glow. Dante also uses it to describe the soul of St. Benedict and it, And he has, he moves forward with this inner glow. It's not a glow that that is surficial, it's internal, which is
1: very subtle. So topazes are symbols of angels. Sapphires have these heavenly connotations, right? The blue, etc. rubies. Yes. Um, sort of. He uses rubies to describe Christian warriors and souls of the blessed. Um, so there's really interesting work happening here. There's also a discussion of amber, right? Not just in yes. the work of Dante, but beyond. And this winds up being a really important. Um, substance here um, that also kind of kicks us back to the Etruscans a little bit right? can Can you talk yes. a little bit for you about the importance of amber to the work that you 're doing here Well, this also was something
0: absolutely uh, astonishing that amber has been used and known. To, since prehistoric time and it's it was considered a magical stone it's not a mineral it's not a stone but it is fossilized tree resin and the etruscans um B.C. would bring it in from the Baltic. There was the amber root that came from the Baltic countries down into Italy and it had certain piezoelectric properties. These are properties that if you rub the amber it can attract like bits of hair or animal fur and can cause a spark. So the Greeks the Etruscans regarded it as a magical stone. But um. Pliny the Younger, a lot of Greek and Roman um, uh, historians and doctors wrote about its healing properties. And even in the Middle Ages, the herbalist prescribed oil of amber. And it wasn't until the 1930s that European biochemists did some analysis on amber, and they found out that it had succinic acid in it. And succinic acid is like an amino acid it's um integral to us living our metabolic cycle is dependent on this type of material and what happened is that the ancients used the um amber to heal fevers and um all sorts of pain. And now, today, we manufacture this succinic acid, and it's in practically all of our pharmaceuticals. And I just was absolutely amazed that that these ancient people knew about the healing properties of amber, and we're using them today.
1: Right. Thank you. Now, as we move from, um, you know, we've been with the Etruscans, we've been with Virgil, we've been with Dante. Now, as we move to chapter four, we move to a couple of chapters that really focus on um, the man, the figure who's in the title of the book, and this is Da Vinci. Yes. Chapter four um, takes us into and really kind of introduces to us um, da Vinci as geologist and da Vinci as observer, um, da Vinci's sort of knowledge of and work with, um, d- Rocks and fossils um, and, and to fluid dynamics, among other things. Now, in this chapter, Da Vinci's Codex Lester, which thank you for um, telling me how to pronounce that before we, <laughs> before we started recording. Uh, da Vinci's Codex Lester is very, very important here. Um, so can you maybe take us into... Um, or help us uh, move into this chapter by talking a little bit about what fascinates you so much about um, da Vinci's Codex Lester. What's so important about that text for the work that's being done in this chapter? Well, this codex uh, is now um, in
0: the hands of Bill Gates, he um, bought it in 1993, and he's done done a marvelous job of both conserving it and, and putting it up uh, on the computer so that, that we can really see it in all of its glory. Because this is really where Leonardo's notes on geology and meteorology and the earth sciences really... Um, are compactly presented. So this is the important text for what I was doing. And this is where I found a lot of his tweets, because he would write these little notes. And this is also very human and very charming, because as a geologist, when you go out in the field, you can't write war and peace. You have your little note. And you write, you know. I I saw, uh, you know, a rock. It was red. It had uh, this kind of grains, and I could identify so much with what he was doing. And of course, he was a much better artist than I. And he would do his little sketch. So it was, it was something very human, very. Um, very important. And, and then when you start to tie together um, his little notes with his sketches, you can actually see how he um, actually is the father of geology because his notes and sketches combined can be used in a geology book today.
1: And in fact, one of the really interesting points that you're making in this chapter is that his, this, um, these powers, as you call them, extraordinary powers of observation actually hold the key to determining, as you put it here, the authenticity of his work. Um and yes. so you you point us to in particular um his deluge series as a clue to his kind of insight into fluid dynamics and so can you talk a little bit about that his powers of observation um in what way does that help us understand the authenticity of his work and what is what is he doing with fluid dynamics here? Well, Leonardo
0: was different from other artists um of his time, even, you know, from from Botticelli, for instance, he criticized Botticelli because Botticelli did not uh, give um, the right amount of detail to the landscape. Most artists felt that the figures were the most important part of any painting and would just sketch in the landscape or have some apprentice um put in a bad landscape, as as Leonardo would say. But Leonardo, being this polymath, felt that the totality of any piece of art had to honor nature, if there was nature in the painting. The the whole work had to be of a certain level. And this, this was the way he worked. So every sketch he did was perfect. Now, the man had, you know, like some people have uh, photographic memories. Leonardo's ability to see things was extraordinary. So he did a lot of work as a water engineer. And he could see the trajectory of a drop of water. And he could remember it. And then he could draw it. And it's these drawings that we can look at now and see that he described this vortex flow flow pattern, which now we have identified as a hurricane. He did geologic maps that are extraordinary that you could just think, well, was he in an airplane? How did he get this level of detail? Because we can compare them to modern geographic and geologic maps of today. And, and they're perfect. So, he had incredible talent but also we have to remember that he wasn't an artist he was as, as much um a, a civil engineer a um hydraulic engineer as he he was anything else
1: and this is um the glory of the man <laughs> Now, this actually is a perfect segue into the next chapter, right? Um, but I, I won't leave this chapter before mentioning for listeners. Um, listeners who are particularly interested in the history of paleontology um, or of fossils will find a fascinating discussion in chapter four of Leonardo's work with and his insights into fossils, which actually wind up being really, really significant um, in terms of the history of paleontology and the history of how we understand. Um, the kind of objects that fossils are and their relationship to the natural and living world. But this interest in um, Leonardo as an observer, right? And the kind of Leonardo as an engineer, as a geologist, is very much um, the focus of chapter five. Now, this is called Leonardo's Geology, A Tale of Two Paintings. And it's very much um, sort of taking us into a mystery that you're solving Thanks to your particular expertise and really kind of unique confluence of expertise in geology and in Renaissance studies that you're bringing to bear on this. So here we have... Um, a case in which Leonardo's interest in geology and in Alpine geology in particular becomes a key to understanding how to authenticate paintings that have been attributed to him. So there are two paintings here, one in the Louvre and one in the National Gallery in London. Um, And I am just going to kick this over to you. Um, So can you take listeners who maybe are unfamiliar with this case um, into what's happening here? Um, What are these two paintings and how does our understanding of Leonardo the geologist help us understand what's happening um, with these two paintings?
0: Well, they are two paintings um, of the Virgin of the Rocks and they're both attributed to Leonardo. And in my crazy... um, (laughs) Mission to see geology and everything um, I, I, I thought this was a perfect painting to study and um, I, I didn't uh, run headlong into studying these pic- this picture as a matter of fact it was serendipity because what I did was I had studied all of Leonardo's drawings I never looked at a painting I studied his drawings um, his nature drawings rocks and plants for a long time and I started to see the geology in all of his drawings and that led me on the trail to say that um, accurate geology is key to Leonardo's style and then one day a book was on the table and it fell to the floor and it opened to this painting of the Virgin of the Rocks in London. <laughs> wow. It was like, it was like uh, magic. And I picked it up and I looked at it and I said, he didn't paint this painting because the rocks are all wrong. And then you can imagine how crazy I felt because it says Leonardo da Vinci. And then I turned a couple of pages and I saw the one in the Louvre and the rocks and the plants were perfect. And I started to um, analyze all of the rocks and in the Louvre painting and they were perfect. And in the national gallery painting, they were not. And so I carried pictures around of these paintings and showed all my geologic um, colleagues and I said, I need you to look at these two paintings. And they thought I was nuts. And I said, no, no, you don't have to look at the figures, but look at the rocks. <laughs> and so I got the best minds working on there. And and the more we started to work on these things, the more things we we saw. We got blow-ups. We, we took measurements. And... Um, we just identified so many features which were very important to us um, in the in the Louvre painting, and we couldn't identify uh, very much in the London painting, and there were a lot of errors in the London painting. So um, I wrote up this article, and it was very difficult to get it published in a peer-reviewed journal because it was both controversial and... Um, uh, are very much unwanted in, in certain fields. You know, the MIT Press, Leonardo Journal published it, and it really started a whole discourse on these two paintings. And so what happened was two years, three years ago, um, uh, the National Gallery took it. To be cleaned. And two years ago, they said, okay, it's been cleaned. Now we feel it's a real Leonardo. Well, unfortunately, you can just see the errors all the more clearly now that it's been cleaned. (laughs) And um, in the meantime, I uh, was able to find a number of botanists who actually looked at the two paintings. And um, that work is in the in the book, we compare the botany, the geology, and and then Charles Hope, the director of the Warburg Institute, did a whole discourse on the um, ancient no, notarial text in Latin that basically said that the London version was not by Leonardo. So I bring in sort of all, all the big guns here to say, we really feel this is not by Leonardo.
1: Now it's, totally fascinating here because what you're doing in the, the chapter, you know, lays out, as you've just mentioned, all of these kinds of evidence. So it's really, really fascinating. Readers um, will find really detailed readings of these paintings as texts and really as archives, right, of a kind of history of geology, history of science, history of botany um, that's very unusual and really, really enlightening and I think quite ingenious. Um, so it's not, you don't just make the argument here, you're really taking Taking us in step by step and holding our hand and showing us um, this argument, um, is, and which is really useful because it's such a visually based argument that actually physically seeing it and having you lay all this out is is incredibly helpful in the chapter. Now, you talk in the chapter about the fact um, that this commitment to geological realism is not just something that can help us understand and authenticate um, Leonardo's paintings, but it's also something that we can use to understand and authenticate the work of his students. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Cause that also seems really important here. Yes, because, um,
0: uh, after I published the, the article comparing the, the two paintings and basically saying the, the one in the, the Louvre is by Leonardo, a number of critics suggested that the National Gallery painting might have been painted by Leonardo's students. First of all, Leonardo had very few students. Um, and secondly, um, I analyzed the work of those students. Um, one, one was Francesco Melzi, who stayed with Leonardo throughout his life. And the other was both Trafio and Dogionio. And they went on to be um, painters in their own. Right, and one of the paintings that I analyzed was the um, the Resurrection, which is in the Berlin Berlin Museum, and this is another tour de force geologically, and you can see Leonardo's influence on his students because while they didn't have his talent artistically, you can identify the rocks, you can identify the kind of the purplish gray atmosphere that Leonardo suggested you use for um, portraying different objects. You can see all of Leonardo's influence on these students. So to basically confront the argument that uh, a painting might have been painted by Leonardo's students, you have to look at the geology as well. And if the geology is identifiable and um, accurate then you know it's his student. And that is where the National Gallery painting fell short because, once again, it wasn't accurate geology.
1: So I won't ruin um, the mystery for listeners. They'll have to go to the book and read it for themselves. But you don't just leave us there, right? You You also take us into kind of the backstory that explains, I think, why these two paintings, um, kind of going back to the Virgin of the Rocks paintings, why these two versions of this painting would have existed in the first place and what historical conditions would have led to the production of these very similar but actually quite different um, manifestations of the same scene. And it has to do with the history of the production of um, of work like this, and it has to do with the story of Da Vinci and these brothers that he gets into this business relationship with, their framers, and he's an artist. And so I'm, right. not, I, I'm not going to ruin the I'm not going to ruin the mystery here, right. but I'll just mention for um, for listeners that whole story is gone into in detail in the chapter. So definitely um, check out the chapter to resolve that mystery. So so as we move from chapter five to chapter six, we move into um, another really fascinating case study that actually moves us away from Leonardo and into a broader realm here. This is a chapter that's devoted to Italy's caverns and grottos. And this is really, really fascinating stuff. So Again, bringing together um, expertise as a geologist and expertise as a kind of Renaissance studies scholar in this book, you're showing us here the importance of caverns and grottos in terms of the history of worship, of cults, of revelations. Um, by pointing us to some really important geological features of caves and grottos that would potentially be responsible for producing these kinds of effects in people. And that is the kind of gaseous environment of these caves and grottos. So can you maybe talk a little bit um, about that? Sort of what... Um, what do we need to understand about caves and grottos to understand that the work that you're doing here in taking us into like these cult caverns with vases with stalagmites growing out of them um so can you basically can you just talk a little bit about that um grottos and caverns and what most fascinates you about what's happening here in this chapter
0: Well um Italy is very interesting because it has these grottos and, and caverns. Um, a lot of places don't have them, so that's number one. But if you look at some of these prehistoric caverns filled with um, Incredible rock art, such as uh, Lascaux or Altamira. Um, most of them are closed. You can't visit them. Um, they're they're very fragile environments. Um, but in Italy, it's completely different. You can go to these places, and um, I'm a big believer that um, these these places hold the soul of people who lived there, prehistoric man who lived there, prehistoric man who worshiped there. And there's a great deal of work that has to be done to understand what was going on in these caverns because um, prehistoric man went there and collected drip water um, from the stalactites and um, they would put these little vases down. Now they didn't, it, Need the water? It wasn't potable water because they had a, a, adequate drinking water. So it must have been some ritual, because uh, we're finding a lot of these um, votive offerings in caves. Also, caves um, have have symbolically meant two things. Number one, if you go into some of these magical caves, they're um, decorated. Much like some sort of fantastic cathedral, just the majesty of nature is is beautiful. But you can also go into caves, and it can be like the entry into the underworld. So it has a dual function. They can be close to God or close to the gods of the underworld. And there's also a lot of gases that are in, emitted in these caves. So people might feel euphoric in these caves. They might they might be getting a buzz um, in them. And that makes them feel good, too. But the interesting thing, once again, is that modern science has helped us understand some of these mysteries. Because up until about 100 years ago, and maybe even today in, in some places, women would go into these caves and collect this drip water and rub the water on their breasts to assure fertility and adequate breast milk. And um, so one might think that this is um, just a cult or or a tradition, but in fact, we've analyzed um this drip water recently and we found out that it it has minerals it has different fungi algae different kinds of bacteria that are actually a an antibiotic and the collectively these agents are known to promote healing so Here again, we have um, something that's been going on for millennia. And now we're finding out because we have the right scientific testing equipment that
1: people who uh, things that people have done and known about actually promote healing. Fabulous. Thank you. And so there, and there's a whole discussion in the chapter of these milk caves, right? As you call them. Yes. The mountain milk or the moon milk. It's really, yes. really fabulous. There are also um, discussions about the ways that these caves and also grottos specifically move from indoors to outdoors. Yes. Right. And, um, and you talk about the importance of kind of understanding this in the context of the the grotesque in Raphael. Um, So maybe as we kind of come to the end here, can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of what is the importance here of understanding the move from inside to outside um, and what's important about that for you um, in terms of the work that you're doing in this chapter? Well, the the ancient
0: and and Greek philosophers believed that that caves and grottos were a place that one went to, to on um, on a spiritual path. They were very sacred places, and even today, um, the Catholic Church has done a marvelous job of rebranding these caverns, and making them the Cavern of Saint Michael, um, the Cavern of this saint that saint and and i think they've done a marvelous job of preserving the spirituality of these caves that that have magical drip waters and magical stones what happened in the renaissance however is is the people lost their way and the very rich people of the renaissance all decided they wanted to have a cavern or a grotto and they started building these fake grottos to um show their wealth. So it was like, um, you know, we need to have a Prada bag. We need to have a, a BMW, you know, to show that we're spiritually developed. Something got lost in the translation in the Renaissance. And um, you had um, many of the, the wonderful grottos that we see like in the Boboli Gardens. The, um, there's a lot in and around Florence and Tuscany. We're actually kind of this this morph from metaphysical spiritual development into mass consumerism, and I thought that that, that was a wonderful a divergence. But of course, we we have the grottos, and 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 we can see them today in in all their glory. But
1: they're they're fake grottos made to look real. <laughs> So, Anne, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you about the book, and it's such a beautiful book. There's a ton of material in here. Um, and as you mentioned at the very beginning, it's material that can be, you know, read from beginning to end and can also be experienced in more of a kind of, um, discreet, right, Twitter-like way, um, by opening up the book and, and diving in and then coming back out again at one's pleasure. So, and, and so it's really been great to talk with you about this. Now, of course, um, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? It's a very rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, um, there's
0: a couple of things that really, um, were amazing to me. Uh, one of the ones was, uh, the Etruscans. I, I find them absolutely fascinating. And, um, The last couple of years, the Italian Geophysical um, Agency produced a geomagnetic map of Italy. The Earth um, has magnetic fields, and they they vary from place to place. And I thought, hmm, I'm very interested in the effect of the magnetic field on our bodies. And what happened is I had a map. Um, commissioned, where I used GPS, and I placed all the Etruscan cities on this geomagnetic map of Tuscany. And what I found is that the um, Etruscans place their cities where there are negative geomagnetic fields. Now, what does this mean? Modern medical science is doing a lot of research on this. And All the facts are not in, but they really seem to feel that areas that have negative geomagnetic fields make us feel better. They're calming. Areas with positive geomagnetic fields add to our stress. And the jury is still out, but I thought, how did the Etruscans know where to put their cities? Because it might have been right near an area that had positive magnetic fields but they didn't put the city there they put the city where all the the areas were negative so I'm trying to work on uh, with geophysicists and with medical people to try to figure this out because I I think it's a fascinating research project and um, I think think it's just amazing the other um, area that I also thought was fantastic was the um, the island of the Fountain of Youth, which is Ischia in the uh, Bay of Naples, mm-hmm. and since the time of the Greeks, seven fifty BC. Everyone has gone there for the healing waters. And what's the secret of the healing waters? They have minerals and they're warm and they're volcanic in nature. But in 1918, Marie Curie went to the island of Ischia and she tested the waters and she found out that they were mildly radioactive. She had just discovered radioactivity. Uh, So before then, nobody could know about this. And now modern medical researchers are showing that low levels of radioactivity are actually very helpful to our immune system and help us heal various ailments so i'm, I'm finding these these things
1: very 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 interesting well that's both of those sound super fascinating. And in fact, I was going to um, close by asking you kind of what you're working on now, you know, what you're particularly inspired by Would that pretty much. Are you actively working on those two um, areas of research? And if, if so, great. If not, um, what's currently inspiring you? I'm, I'm working on those, but what's
0: inspiring me is medical geology. I feel that there's so much we don't know. And there's a new um, group of geologists um, and called GeoMed. And they're bringing together um, medical researchers, doctors, and geologists to find out um, the effects of, of various... Geologic areas, magnetic fields dust um, uh, toxins in the earth on our health, and gradually very very exciting stuff is is coming out of out of this research it 's in its infancy, but it 's very exciting and um, i'm totally on board with studying this because i I think so many of our maladies are perhaps caused by things in the earth and and not not stress or the earth is stressing us
1: (laughs) well and thank you so much best of luck um with that work right now and also congratulations on the book and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about it it's really been a pleasure thank you it's been a pleasure for me too